civil rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. They were finally off. 102 passengers and about 25 ship crew, the open waters ahead and no land in sight. The sway of the ship and the salty spray of Atlantic Ocean waves would likely lose their novelty in the weeks to come. But for now, excitement filled every heart. They were pilgrims. The year was 1620. Who were these people? Why were they so desperately launching out into a new world? Well, in England, worship was required by law. And believing the customs of the English church to be corrupted with idolatry, a group of separatist Christians knew that not joining in worship as a part of the state-approved church, they would face imprisonment, exile, and death. They found refuge on the friendly shores of the Dutch Republic. But after a decade or so, persecution from England managed to reach them even there. Their hope of a land of religious freedom? North America. Finally, after 66 days, a massive storm nearly wiping them out with uh, waves over 30 meters, that's 100 feet high, on September 20, they saw land. They were hundreds of miles off course, but it didn't matter. Hoping to create their new home on the wild shores of the Hudson River, the group docked in Plymouth Bay instead. This would become the Plymouth Bay Colony, if they survived. It was just the start of winter, and one of the 87 pilgrims aboard wrote about this new land. He said, It's a hideous and desolate wilderness, filled with wild beasts and wild men. Within the first four months of that brutal winter, 45 out of the 102 colonists died. The pilgrims didn't know if they could even make it to spring. But late that winter, out of the wilderness, walking straight into the colony, some unlikely saviors uh, found their way. Two Native American men, and one of them spoke in English. An Abenaki Native American named Samoset had learned English from some of the English fishing camps off the coast of Maine. Soon he came back with his friend Squanto, who spoke amazing English. Squanto had been taken to Spain as a slave, eventually made his way to England, and finally came back home in 1619, just a year earlier. Squanto lived with the pilgrims for 20 months, teaching them to fish, and since the seeds that they had brought over from England mostly failed, he helped them to plant and cultivate food as well. These pilgrims developed very friendly relationships with the Native American tribes, trading and interacting together in positive ways. One of the pilgrim women, pregnant when they left England, um, ended up giving birth as they were docked in Cape Cod. The first pilgrim baby was born into the new world, peregrine white. 
It just so happens that my mother's great-great-grandfather was named James White, and he and his parents traced their lineage back to the first pilgrim baby, Peregrine White. Pretty neat, but not unique. About 35 million people around the world today have descended from those Plymouth pilgrims. They were fruitful and multiplied. One historian named Bancroft wrote, They were content to earn a bare subsistence by a life of frugality and toil. They asked nothing from the soil but the reasonable returns of their own labor. They patiently endured the privations of the wilderness, watering the tree of liberty with their tears and with the sweat of their brow till it took deep root in the land. After they had survived that first winter and harvested their first crop of fruit and vegetables, the pilgrims, along with the Native Americans that they had befriended, sat down together to thank God for bringing them through. This was the first Thanksgiving meal, and it would become a great American holiday. Every single year since 1621, it's been celebrated, and not just in America. This past November, my wife Sharissa and I got to go over to our co-presenter, Lyle Southwell's home, and with he and his wife Shell, who happens to be American, we enjoyed a massive, delicious meal. Family, friends, faith, and fantastic food have characterized Thanksgiving for nearly 400 years. By the way, next year marks exactly 400 years since the first Thanksgiving. And it all began with those Plymouth pilgrims. But these weren't the first English settlers on America's shore. Thirteen years earlier, in 1607, a ship from London, funded by a group of British entrepreneurs who were seeking gold, silver, and a passage to the Orient, landed on the coast of Virginia, founding Jamestown, named, of course, after the English king. This was the first successful British settlement, but its beginnings could hardly be called a success. With the proud English gentlemen being too civilized to get their hands dirty in farming, 62 out of the 100 of them died within the first winter. If it wasn't for the kindness of a Native American tribe who shared their corn, they all likely would have died. The year quickly passed and the second winter was no better. Sadly, due to Native American attacks, disease, and the worst famine in 800 years, of the now 500 settlers in Jamestown, 440 died. Just 60 were left. Eventually, treaties with the local Powhatan tribe would enable them to make it by, and the settlement really took off when they discovered tobacco. It became all the craze back in London, and Jamestown began farming and exporting it across the sea. This fattened the wallets of the colonists, but at a very high cost. Now this is amazing. Two main groups of English settlers first came to the New World, Jamestown and Plymouth. They came within 13 years of each other, and both struggled with a rough crossing, hunger, disease, and uh, difficulty, various setbacks in their settlements. But neither of them thought that they would shape the future of a nation. But the huge difference that they left was their legacy. Because of their motives for going, Jamestown was a money-making investment. But Plymouth was about seeking religious freedom. The Jamestown colony became successful by planting tobacco in 1619, and the legacy passed down to us today is this. The deadly effects of tobacco use, slavery due to the need for farm workers, and racism that comes along with slavery. By and large, they killed off the Native Americans around them, starting with the very ones that saved their lives after they arrived. But on the other hand, those pilgrims of Plymouth, we see from them a heritage of religious freedoms and education. In order that ministers could spread the gospel, Harvard was founded nearby in 1636. And today, nearly 40 colleges and universities are within one hour of Boston. 
instead of killing the natives to steal their food like the Jamestown group. In contrast, with the love of Jesus, these pilgrims sat down at the Thanksgiving dinner table with the Native Americans whom they had come to know and love. Two small groups that left huge legacies, both without realizing the lasting impact that they would make. All because one existed for selfish gain and the other for selfless service. Besides Jamestown in the south and the Plymouth pilgrims up north though, soon there arrived others in search of a new life. English Puritans arrived in Massachusetts. And while some were kind and godly people, their staunch beliefs of predeterminism made most of them dogmatic and harsh, eventually even creating a climate that led to innocent people dying in the Salem witch trials. It's no wonder that historians like H.L. Mencken have said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. We know they must have had some fun though because uh, we have historical records of them having archery competitions and other sports competitions uh, together. And the Puritans tried to make people holy though by legislating morality. And some of the laws they passed forbade the use of using dice or playing cards and some even governed the way that people dressed. One law forbade women from wearing lace and another stated the acceptable length and width of a lady's sleeve. Dresses had to be long enough to drag on the floor because surely no self-respecting woman would ever show any ankle. <laughs> there were also laws forbidding swearing in public. And interestingly enough, most of these old laws still sit in America's law books today. Just earlier this year, Virginia legislators finally repealed a centuries-old law against cursing in public. Every once in a while, there are stories like Timothy Boomer, who became known in 1999 as the cussing canoeist. After his canoe hit a rock and he tipped out into Michigan's Rifle River, he let out a string of curse words in an angry tirade. A police officer who was patrolling the river gave him a fine and he was charged for, the, for swearing in front of children. He could have spent 90 days in jail, but instead the judge threw the case out. This seems crazy to us today. I mean, sadly, children can hear swearing if they get on the wrong YouTube video uh, on their parents' phone. Now, while these mandates from the 16 and 1700s seem to us today to be nothing more than laughable laws, the punishments were no joke. In Maryland in 1723, there was a law that anyone caught swearing, speaking blasphemy or cursing God, would, and I quote, for the first offense, be bored through the tongue and fined 20 pounds sterling. For the third offense, the penalty was death without benefit of the clergy. That's from the American State Papers. But the laws didn't stop at forbidding swearing. They even enforced worship. For example, in Virginia in 1610 was the first of these types of laws, and it was required that all attend divine services on Sunday mornings. Everyone had to go to church, in other words. Now, if someone chose to stay at home, first, they would lose their allowance for the week, second, they would be whipped publicly, and the third time, they were to suffer death. And these weren't just empty threats. The Puritans even tyrannized their own citizens. They arrested a sea captain and locked him in stocks after kissing his wife on a Sunday. John Lewis and Sarah Chapman were two lovers that were brought to justice for sitting together on Sunday under an apple tree in Goodman Chapman's orchard. One man fell into a pond on his way to church, and so he skipped church so that his suit could dry, and they whipped the poor man in the name of Jesus, supposedly. What shocking legalism! This was the same spirit as the medieval church of Europe, who was responsible for as many as 150 million deaths during the Dark Ages, all for not believing and worshipping as the church deemed fit. What a sad picture. 
Here were Christians who had decried the errors of Europe's church-state systems, now doing much of the same thing. Their attitude was, believe what I believe, support what I support, or die. Sound familiar? Kind of like some of the movements afoot today. Now, while these old laws are seen as archaic to us today and lie mostly dormant on the United States law books, you'll be shocked to learn that today there are many individuals and organizations pushing for one type of these laws to return. And we're going to look at it more closely in presentation number seven, so don't miss it. Now, not all the Christian leaders went along with these draconian laws. One man who stood up against the persecuting Puritan powers was Roger Williams. He arrived in Massachusetts in 1631 and protested their legislated legalism. Williams declared it to be the duty of the civil rulers to restrain crime, but never to control the conscience. He said, and I quote, When they attempt to prescribe a man's duties to God, they are out of place, and there can be no safety. For it is clear that if the magistrate has the power, he may decree one set of opinions and beliefs today and another tomorrow as has been done in England by different kings and queens and by different popes and councils in the Roman church, so that belief would become a heap of confusion. Now, Roger Williams was respected and he was a much-loved, faithful Christian minister. But this didn't matter to the leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They saw his ideas as dangerous and planned to arrest him. Williams escaped, thankfully, but into a forest, and it was the dead of winter. He says... For 14 weeks, I was sorely tossed in a bitter season, not knowing what bed or bread did mean. But the ravens fed me in the wilderness. And he found often a hollow of a tree to serve him as a shelter. He continued his exile through the snowy forest until he found refuge with a Native American tribe who he had befriended before while sharing the gospel with them. After months with no real place to call home, Williams made his way finally to the Narragansett Bay where he laid the foundations of a new state. The capital? Providence. Appropriately a name since God had provided for all of his needs. The colony? Rhode Island. This was the first state of modern times to fully recognize the right of religious freedom. All were free to worship or not worship God as they believed right. Jews, Catholics, and Quakers, the irreligious, they were all welcome and as full-fledged citizens. Roger Williams, Rhode Island, the tiniest of all 50 states, grew and prospered until its founding principles of civil and religious liberty became the cornerstones of the American Republic. Before moving on from the topic of religious freedom, a quick story. As a boy in the old town in Virginia, James Madison heard a fearless Baptist minister preaching but out of the window of a prison cell. From that day on, there was in his heart a burning desire to protect freedom of conscience for the entire nation. Tirelessly, he worked, along with others that shared the same passion, until the first ten amendments of the U.S. Constitution were made. The first amendment powerfully starts, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Freedom of religion. Thanks to Madison and these others, this would become a guarantee in America. As the 1700s marched on, the feeble and isolated colonies grew into a confederation of powerful states, and the world marked with wonder the peace and prosperity of a new nation. 
The colonies were growing rapidly. Because of low death rates and ample supplies of land and food, heavy flows of immigrants made their way to America's shores. Not only from England, but from Germany, Scotland, Ireland, Poland. People from all over seeking a new life. In the 100 years between 1700 and 1800, the population of the United States grew over 21 times from about 250,000 uh, to over 5.3 million. But not all of these numbers were something to be proud of. Nearly 17% of the 5.3 million people were slaves. That's about one in every five or six people. Around 900,000 individuals in North America were slaves. In the year 1619, a British privateered ship flying a Dutch flag arrived in Jamestown with about 20 of the continent's first African slaves. The sick wickedness of slavery had infected North America. And it wasn't just Africans, it was Native Americans too. Between 1670 and 1715, in those 45 years, it's estimated that between 24,000 and 51,000 captive Native Americans were exported from South Carolina. And that was more than the number of Africans imported for slavery during that same period. But Africans and Native Americans weren't the only ones being brought in chains to work farms and plantations in America's South. Prisoners from England were sent over as well. In 1718, the Brits passed the Transportation Act and began sending over their prison convicts to be sold as indentured servants for people in America. Historians estimate that there were around 60,000 prisoners literally shipped off to North America in a period of 57 years. That's an average of about 1,000 people every year. And these passengers of the king, as they were called, weren't just men. Some women convicts were also transported to the colonies. Sometimes even for crimes as small as being lewd, it was said, or walking the streets past 10 p.m. Typically, getting banished to America was for either 7 or 14 years, and a convict could go back to England after his time. But 90% of them ended up staying in North America. And, I mean, if I got thrown in jail and shipped halfway across the world for swearing or being out past 10 p.m., I wouldn't want to go back to England either. After America began the war for their independence in 1774, England could no longer send their convicts to America. So, they decided on Australia. My wife didn't want me to include that, but hey, it's history. As the 18th century went on, tensions built in North America. It wasn't just England that occupied the continent. They were on the East Coast, but west of the 13 colonies was a big chunk of territory that France occupied. From Newfoundland and Quebec in the Northeast, across the Great Lakes and down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, and west of, Spain, west of France was Spain. They owned virtually all of the still very wild west. But some of this was about to change. In 1754 erupted a war, the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. A distant skirmish in the Ohio River Valley launched England and France into a long and bloody war. Not only was it being fought on the American front, but as far as the Mediterranean Sea and even in India. Eventually, British armies invaded and conquered Canada. France had already lost the battle in India and they saw that defeat was not far distant. After negotiations failed with England, the King of Spain, Charles III, offered to come to the aid of his cousin, the King of France, Louis XV. Together they signed an alliance known as the Family Compact on August 15, 1761. 
The compact basically said that if the war didn't end by May 1, 1762, Spain would enter the war with France against England. And this actually ended up happening. The three nations militarily duked it out around the globe until the Treaty of Paris in 1763. But the family compact in 1761 pretty much ended the war in North America. I mean, for the most part. Hence the name Seven Years' War. Now here's the relevant point to all of this for our message. After the war, France pulled out of North America, leaving half of it to Spain and half of it to England. Everything west of the Mississippi was Spain's and everything east of the Mississippi was England's. England's territory in North America had just doubled. However, the fruits of victory brought the seeds of trouble with Great Britain and the American colonies. The Brits had won the war, but at a high cost, literally. It had been extremely expensive, and the King of England felt it was only fair that colonists pay heavy taxes to make up the deficit. The Stamp Act was passed, basically taxing everything printed on paper. And this was a terrible burden that was heavier than what the colonists were willing to bear. Not so much because the tax was so high, but because they had no direct representation in Parliament who levied the tax. Finally, after four months of widespread protest, the British Parliament repealed it. But the taxation monster reared its ugly head again. And American colonists were getting tired of being ruled by a king in a castle across the sea. Colonists began boycotting English goods, which was the most significant way that they could hurt the pocketbook of the king. Eventually, in 1773, colonists dressed up as Native Americans, boarded a British tea ship in Boston Harbor, and dumped about $1 million worth of tea overboard into the waters. It was known as the Boston Tea Party. And this was a tipping point. The people began to rally for war. Now back during the Seven Years' War, a few decades before, a lieutenant colonel had outshined all of his fellow officers. George Washington was his name. As time went on, Washington was finding himself feeling less and less like an Englishman and more like a Virginian. He would be the one to lead the way in the War of Independence, the Revolutionary War. In the words of a historian, his enduring fortitude, his military prowess, his influence had sustained the spirit of the revolution, crowned it with success, and earned for himself the glorious preeminence of being the first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. George Washington became the first president or commander-in-chief of the United States. The Revolutionary War, though, went on for seven years, and though the King of England didn't recognize the United States as a free and independent nation until 1783, when a treaty was signed in Paris, America's actual birth was in 1776. The Revolutionary War had waged for over a year. The date was July 4. Representatives from all of the colonies, great statesmen, many men of intellect and piety came together to draft, sign, and send to the King of England the Declaration of Independence. This mix of pioneers and prisoners, of Puritans and pilgrims, had become its own country. And not just any country, but a nation that would provide economic opportunity, religious freedom, and civil liberty to all who would seek them the United States of America. Beautifully summarizing the spirit of America, the preamble of the Declaration of Independence reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As we saw earlier, James Madison would later help to write the First Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing that the government would not make a law either prescribing and enforcing, nor forbidding any form of religion. There was a clear separation between church and state, between government and religion. Many of the chapters of what was happening on America's shores were dark and terrible, and no doubt broke the heart of God. Things like the brutal slavery of the tobacco and cotton fields of the South, or wiping out Native American tribes in the name of manifest destiny. But when it came to the structure of government, and the writing of documents like the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution with its various amendments, it is as though a divine hand was guiding, overruling, so that this nation, in its laws and founding principles, would be a bastion of freedom, both civil and religious freedom. The majority of the men who drafted these amazing documents and who set up the United States system of government were Protestant Christians or Deists. When they came together, they actually deliberated for over four weeks and finally they concluded with what felt to be the best system of government. Three branches. And interestingly enough, the Bible was the first most quoted book among these founding fathers. But the second most quoted individual was a French political philosopher named Charles Montesquieu. And his concept of the ideal human government was that it should be divided into three branches. The judicial, the legislative, and the executive. And I just learned actually a few days ago that he got this idea from the Bible. Isaiah 33 verse 22 says, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Amazing. All three branches of government represented there in that Bible verse. Of course, all the founding fathers knew that imperfect human beings would tend to grasp for more power than they should. So they set up the branches, each individual one, with certain powers with checks and balances, having extra checks on the executive branch, uh, which is the president, of course, since the Founding Fathers recognized that this branch would most likely be the one in danger of becoming like a king. In the words of James Madison, Americans wanted a church without a pope and a state without a king. And basing the system of government on Montesquieu, who based his idea on the Bible, a solid foundation was set. The message was being sung in the land. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Speaking of freedom ringing, the Great Liberty Bell in Philadelphia has a Bible verse on it. Leviticus 25 verse 10 inscribed on the bell says this, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Though it would be nearly 100 more years until the sin of slavery would be stamped out, and though fraught with flaws and imperfections and imperfect people, the hand of an almighty God had directed the founding fathers of the United States to set up a constitution and a system of government so that America could be one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. I hope you enjoyed that presentation and if you did, know that this is really just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. The Bible has so much more to say on this topic. And if you're interested in learning more, please take a moment to text or call the number that you see on your screen. We'd love to either connect you with someone to study these topics with you personally, uh, or 
send you some information through the series called Prophecy Code or the Prophetic Code. And so please call or text the number on your screen. We'd love to connect you with those as you dig deeper into what the Bible has to say on these very important topics. Hello and good evening. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's live Q&A session. My name is Matt Parra. I am one of the producers of America and the End, and I'm here with our uh, presenters this evening. Uh, we wanted to give all of those people who viewed the series an opportunity to make comments, to ask questions, and to interact with those people who are delivering each evening's presentations. I'm really happy uh, to be here with these guys, and I'd like to introduce them uh, to you. I've got uh, Sharissa Tarosian. Uh, she is to the right of this evening's presenter, whose name is Justin Tarosian, as you guys would know. Uh, he did a fantastic uh, job tonight. I loved, loved the message, and I can't wait to, to talk in detail about it. Uh, at the end of the table here, we've got our good friend and colleague, Lyle Southwell. Um, we consider him the sage of the group, uh, <laughs> the wisest and the most experienced, and we love him. But um, the reason why we're doing this is because we know that as uh, truths from the Bible and uh, historical realities are communicated by our presenters. There's going to be a lot of people out there in internet land who will have questions, who want to have you know the opportunity to comment. And so we thought, let's create a forum after each night's presentation where people can do that. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. And so if you're on Facebook, if you're on YouTube, you can just type into your browser, into the comments section, uh, any questions that you have. And we've got a moderator that's going to flick those questions to my screen, and we can engage with you right now, like on the spot, like right here, <laughs> like uh, now. <laughs> so um, we're excited to do that. But to get things rolling, I'd like to ask uh, a question of tonight's presenter, you, Justin. Um, uh, presentation was awesome. Glad you enjoyed it. I loved it. Uh, this it. is the third time I've said it. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to get the ball rolling by asking you, uh, what was your favorite part of this presentation, the mm. thing that you thought was the most insightful, the most, uh, the, the thing that you thought was the coolest part of your presentation. Mm. You know, something that I, I really enjoyed learning was, you know, growing up in America, you learn this uh, version of American history that's very rosy and perfect. Um, you know, the pilgrims came over and, you know, they were Christian and they had the first Thanksgiving. And then you learn about the, the horrors of slavery in the South. And so there's this kind of dissonance in your mind as you're growing up, like, wait a minute, was America good in the beginning or was it bad? And um, as you heard in the presentation, something that finally really gelled with me in my mind as I was preparing the presentation was that it was both. There was Jamestown in the South and there was slavery with the tobacco fields that they started there. That was just a money-making enterprise. But then also, uh, you know, there was um, the Plymouth Pilgrims up north. And uh, those were the ones who sat down with the Native Americans instead of, you know, attacking them and killing them. And so really, it just finally clicked in my mind. Ah, it was both. You know, America was a, a mixed bag. Um, but you had those two principles kind of going along. And we see this throughout American history. And we're going to yes. be building on it in later presentations that it was really both at once. Mm. And uh, if I could have added anything, I really wish I could have talked more about the Native Americans. But yeah. someone may end up asking a question <laughs> yeah. about that. So maybe yeah, that's awesome. Here. So just to throw something out to uh, you guys as a team of speakers, uh, the advertising that we've done for the America and the End series has said that the United States of America is prophesied or talked about in the Bible in the prophecies of the Bible, and not only is it identified and its rise described, but it's actually uh, its destiny, you know, its, its ultimate 
purpose in world defense is, is discussed. And uh, we didn't talk about that tonight necessarily. Um, why not? And are we going to? Yes, definitely. That's a uh, subject that I'm super keen to, uh, to, to, to dig into and to share with you all. And so beginning tomorrow night, so we're building a foundation. There's nine presentations here. Yeah. So we've got lots of opportunity to be able to share with you uh, exactly where in the Bible you're going to find America described in prophecy. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we've just got started. Build a foundation like any good, you know, historian, <laughs> any good teacher. And we'll build from here. So we are getting into the Bible tomorrow night. We're going to dig deep into Bible prophecy. We're going straight to the book of Revelation. And we are going to, I think, I think you're actually going to be quite shocked and surprised by uh, where America actually comes out in the Bible. And it's very clear. Once you see it, as, as soon as you see the, the identifying characteristics, you'll see it. It's just like, it's right there. It just comes to you. Once yes. you've seen it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> That's right. You can't unsee it. That's right. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for that. Okay, so I've got this really cool comment here that I've got to just mention to you guys. It's not a question. Um, but Josh Shimmer says, I don't know what to ask, though. I'm just really mind-blown as of now. <laughs> I like that. Cool. You feel good about that? Yeah. I think God does. That's great. Yeah, cool. Okay, so on to a question. Someone is asking, why is America, Carly's asking, why is America at the center of all this and not some other country? Hmm. Yeah, I think Lyle's hinted at that already, but I think tonight's presentation was really setting the table for a spiritual feast that's going to follow in the next few presentations. So Hmm. that question will become clearer. The answer to that question will become clearer, I think, as we journey through the series. But this is foundational, and you'll see that the Bible has a lot to say about this country. I think what else is significant, and and once again, we're sort of, you know, it's first night, and so I know we're saying a lot of, it's coming up, it's It's coming up, but it is, it really is coming up. is that when we do get into the Bible and we go through the scriptures to show exactly where America is, this is not something new. This is information that Mm. Christians had a very long time ago and that they had when America was essentially a very, very minor player in the world. Mm. When, you know, back in the day it was almost a little bit like if today we said, you know, uh, 200 years from now, the major superpower in the world will be New Zealand. You know, people would, yeah, people would laugh at us. New Zealanders might. You laugh. Why'd you laugh? Uh, New Zealanders are like, yes, of course we would be. Um, but, you know, we would look at New Zealand as being a fairly minor player on international, on the international right. stage. Mm-hmm. And when America was first identified and people were going, oh, wow, here it is in the Bible, there were a lot of people at that time who said, yeah, we can see exactly what you're saying. We can see it's in the Bible, but we really question it because this nation is just too small and insignificant. Yeah. Right. How and I love this about prophecy because in Bible prophecy, you can identify things that the Bible talks about that are going to happen in the future. Right. And even when they look unbelievable, you can trust it. Mm. That's right. Okay, so we've got a couple more questions that have come in, but there's something that I wanted to throw out here because it's it's something that, came to my mind as I was listening to the presentation, guys, and that was this idea of the separation of church and state, right? Like, tonight's presentation talked about the development of that concept, the development of that idea. The United States of America and all modern nations in the West arose out of uh, out of Europe. You know, governmentally speaking, they all arose out of Europe. And um, the old world of Europe back in the medieval age and um, even, in, even into modern times was not 
a place where people could worship God in accordance with the dictates of their conscience. It was not a place where you could just, you had civil liberties granted to you where you can just, you know, do life the way you chose. Um, okay, so I wanted to maybe just throw out the kind of like, the roll out the carpet here to maybe spend a few moments just discussing this whole idea of the separation of church and state and what the Bible has to say about that subject and why it should be so important to every single person, whether they're religious or not, really. Mm. Anybody want to kind of... Yeah, that's a great question. What are you going to say? I'll say whatever you don't <laughs> So, you know, this, like you're mentioning, this is a very foreign concept to not only the ancient world nations, yes. like Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome. Um, in all of those nations, the king was also the head of the state religion. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the way it worked. Uh, Pharaoh was considered a god. And uh, therefore, he was the head of the religion of the Egyptian people, as well as the political side. Uh, but when we look at the Bible, and we're going to bring this out in future presentations, when we look at the Bible, in uh, the scriptures of the Old Testament, never among God's people were they allowed to have kings who were also religious leaders. Those things were kept separate. Because God knew, as soon as religious powers are given civil power, It won't be very long before uh, religion is enforced and matters of conscience are dictated by law. And God never works through force. He works through freedom of choice. And so this is something that, you know, we see in ancient religions, except for God's people, um, the Hebrew people of the Old Testament, and it carried on into the New Testament. This kind of carried over into Europe and the European nations. And just because it's relevant to our, our series to England, Where a lot of people don't realize, but not only is the queen or the king of England, now the queen of England at the moment, um, the, the civil leader, of course, of the, the government, but, um, she's also technically the head of the Church of England. And so because of this connection, the king and King James was persecuting those who were worshiping in any way, uh, like we heard tonight with the Puritans who went to the Dutch Republic and then even persecution followed them there. They had to flee to America. Uh, we see that inevitably with time, anywhere where there's a nation that, that has religious and civil authority combined, it leads to persecution. Mm. It leads to force. And this is basically the devil wants to work this way because it's opposite to the way uh, that God works. If you think about it, it was a union between church and state that led to the crucifixion of Christ mm. when Jesus was Very walking point. on this earth, oh, according mm, yep. to the Bible. But actually, just in line with also um, how the United States Constitution has the separation of powers, it's actually from the Bible as well, because Jesus said in Mark 12, verse 17, just reading here, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. Okay. So there's a separation. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is yeah. that when, when the United States instituted this idea, it was seen as being incredibly radical, mm. you know, by the established, you know, the great powers of Europe. They'd never seen anything like this, you know, separation. Who would do that? What kind of a, what kind of an idea was that? And America was seen as being the great experiment. Mm. Mm. They all expected it to fail. They all wanted it to fail, but it didn't fail. And because it didn't fail, well, it really brought to an end just by its success, you know, the old monarchies Mm -hmm. of Europe. So it disproved the idea that individuals, uh, if they were allowed to their own devising, their own beliefs, their own 
consciences would just destroy themselves and the world would go to chaos and whatnot. And then you lose all order and all. Yeah. Mm. That was kind of the sense, right? <laughs> you needed a king to tell you what to think. Yeah, exactly. That was I mean, the Because how in the thought... world could you, you know, function without a king that tells you what to think? Uh-huh. Yeah, wow. So, um, you guys are all proponents, and I'm gonna get, man, I'm getting, I gotta, I'm gonna get behind here in a bit, but I love this subject of the separation of church and state, because, you know, w- where do we draw the line though, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes I think about this, and I can't wait until you guys' presentations get more into this, you know, the thick of it, the thick of the prophecies, the thick of the Bible. But, I always wonder in my mind where you draw the line, because aren't all laws to some degree moral laws, and don't they stem on some level from some philosophical viewpoint, whether religious or secular or whatnot, right? Like, so if my religious faith, if my religious belief system tells me that every person is made in the image of God, and therefore, if I see someone who's physically enslaved to another human being, I'm going to stand in opposition to that, and then I make laws in my country that say, no, you cannot enslave other human beings and force them into uh, work like animals, you know, um, that comes from my religious convictions. Should that then not be a law that we can enforce? Like you can't slave, enslave other people because that's part of my religious belief system. Where do we go with that? Did I stomp you guys? No, no. not at all. No. You're just okay. who's going so, first? So separation of church and state <laughs> does not mean that our conscience does not inform our approach to government. Right. Yes, and particularly, you know, America was set up as a democracy, a, a, a republic, a government by the people for the people, and the idea was that that each person's individual conscience would inform their decisions in relationship to the laws that were passed in the government. Mm -hmm. Um, And passing good moral laws does not mean that you are supporting a particular religion. Mm -hmm. Separation of church and state means that there is no state religion. The United States does not have a state religion. It does not stand up and say, this is the religion of our country. This is the religion that we're going to favour. And this is the religion that we're going to legislate that you follow. Mm -hmm. It establishes good moral laws. Well, it's supposed to establish good moral laws based on good citizens who have good morality yes. because they're people of faith. Just briefly, because I see yeah. we have a lot of questions. Yes. Um, yeah, just to, to tag on to uh, what Lyle was saying, if you look at the last six commandments in the Bible, just about every nation in the world has laws in regarding those. Don't kill, don't steal, don't, don't lie, don't, uh, you know commit adultery. These kinds of things have been ingrained in human laws for a long, long time. So to say that separation of church and state would be to remove those from law wouldn't make any sense. Uh, even to people who aren't religious, but recognize the, the wrongness of your things being stolen or you killing someone. Um, and so, like Lyle pointed out, you know, as he mentioned, it's about the separation of church and government in enforcing Worship, enforcing how religion. you relate to God. Exactly. Because no, and it's funny because conscience. if I force you or if you force me to relate to God on a certain level, we're the, the person that's being forced is not actually worshiping God in any real or meaningful way. And so, in a way, they're just like forcing hypocrisy. That's true. So, if you force another person into a worship uh, or a belief, you're basically just forcing them to be a hypocrite. Mm. And the Bible says, "Whatever is not with, with whatever is without faith is sin." You're forcing them to sin, which mm-hmm. is kind of ironic, right? Yeah. Um, sure. I love what you said there. I think it's great. Okay, so now we're going to get into some questions. So our friends out in Facebook and YouTube land will believe us when we say we're going to answer their questions. <laughs> Hold um, on. Okay, through. so guys, um, <clears throat> question from 
Uh, Clive Palmer. He says, great presentation, Justin, full of great information. Thank you. Glad you enjoyed If someone is looking to understand where current events align with the Bible, where would you direct them to start reading? Mm, you know, Clive, great question. And uh, glad you enjoyed the presentation. I enjoyed preparing it. I learned a lot. Um, some One resource that I drew from is the book that was a free offer. I don't know if you caught that tonight, but there was a free offer that popped up on the bottom half of the screen uh, with the phone number. And we'd love to send you a free copy. It's called The Great Controversy. And um, there's a, pil- uh, a chapter in there called The Pilgrim Fathers. And uh, it goes from there all the way into America's role in current world events. And uh, even what the Bible has to say about the future of America's role that we're going to be talking about in this series, some more coming up. So keep watching, um, keep asking great questions, and write in, text in, call in, and we'd love to get you a copy of that powerful book. Excellent. Thank you, brother. Good, good, good on you. All right. Uh, this is from Joel Ridgeway, and uh, Joel is asking, and maybe I shouldn't mention people's names, but... <laughs> I can at least keep my first name. That's okay. I'll start saying... Sorry, uh, that's Joel uh, Rideway. Let's <laughs> see who that was. Uh, yeah, so Joel Rideway is... <laughs> just kidding, everyone. So Joel wants to know, uh, why are we talking about America in Australia? Why so much focus on the USA? Because Australia is a vassal state of the United States. <laughs> let's just, let's just, let's just be honest about this. Let's be real. This is why Australia is so avidly following the elections that are happening right now. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, you know, hey, like, that's a, like, I was just going to joke around, Joel, and say, because I'm American, that's why. <laughs> um, don't you know? Um, well, you know, anyway, you guys want to take that on? I, I think you, made a kind of joking point but it's to some degree okay so yeah that was said with a, with a level of humor but a level of seriousness as well uh america is the dominant superpower in our world right now and as a result of that what happens in america directly affects what happens in australia and we can't afford to ignore that Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, something Sharissa mentioned to me recently is that American elections are actually followed more in Australia than Australian elections, which just goes to show where the level of interest is in, in politics. But um, just on that point, I should say, and I think we should clarify, if Bible prophecy specifically pointed to Australia, no matter how small it was or how large it was, we would be talking about it. That's right. And so you're going to see, when you see the identifying marks that the Bible gives, that Australia is ruled out in uh, this prophecy that we're basing our series around. Mm. So keep watching. Um, you know, we're not here to say America is, you know, the best country in the world without any problems. No. In this series, we do talk about how its founding has, its founding documents are the best um, that we have seen in any modern times. And I say that. Pretty much. Only, uh, I just, just kind of jumped because I'm an American, you're an American. I know, but... We live in Australia. Yeah, so it's like, so and I, the, the I, it's like, I was like... Well, to clarify... That, that part, like, yeah, yeah, that part of me that was like... That I was ready for Australians <laughs> to beat me down with a stick yeah. for being proud of my heritage, you know? I, no, but I mean, the, the founding documents, um, to clarify, it's not that America lives faithfully by those founding documents, which is sad. And it makes for a country that's a mess, and right now especially. And we talk about this later in the series. But it's unique in its founding. It was really a, a, an experiment politically. But as we saw, and as Sharissa yeah. mentioned, the principles are out of the Bible. And so we're not here to paint America like it's 
It is, um, it is flawless, uh, or perfect, but simply present, um, history, current events, as well as yeah. Bible prophecy and where it fits in. So I'm going to these two patriotic, Americans <laughs> up this end of the table, <laughs> you know. Sure, is right down this end? And, you know, maybe we'd love to have that discussion yeah. about, you know, the American system versus the Australian <laughs> system. Yeah, right. Well, maybe not relevant yeah, to right questions. Now. I, I've yeah. got to say something to this, uh, question as well. I think it's very relevant. Good question, Joel. Um, this, connects a bit to what we were talking about at the beginning of this Q&A session, and that was that uh, the, the, the prophecies of Scripture, um, they are relevant because they help us to have intelligent faith in Christ, in the Word of God, and they guide us and they direct us. And so um, you're going to find out that in Revelation chapter 13, uh, God gives us a glimpse, He gives us a picture of what the world will be, and uh, the United States plays an integral integral role in all of that. And so what we wanted to do as uh, Christ-following, Bible-believing Christians is present to the world and to Australia uh, certain biblical truths that were prophesied of 2,000 years ago so that people will look at the Bible and go, whoa, this is a serious book. This is a serious document. This is not just a record of fables and a bunch of ancient you know, uh, enigmatic writings that really mm. aren't founded in fact or uh, reality. And so that's why we're talking about the United States of America, because the great apocalyptic prophecies that God gave to the ancient prophets foresaw the rise of the United States. And so that's why we're talking about it, because God tells us to talk about it. And God shared the prophetic uh, vision of America with his ancient prophets, because he knew that you'd be watching and other people would be watching. And that he wanted them to see that the Bible is trustworthy. And Jesus, he has a verse in the Bible where, there's a verse in the Bible where Jesus says in John 14, and it's verse 29, he says, These things I have told you before they come to pass, so that when they come to pass, you would believe. Mm -hmm. And so we want to help people to believe more Mm -hmm. in the God of creation and his son. Yeah, okay, next question. Great, great stuff. Um, I'm wondering if Sharissa's going to say anything tonight. Uh, But... uh, are you saying that the American Constitution was heavily influenced by the Bible? Yes. That's, that question was from uh, Brian. Good question, Brian. Yeah, that's a fact of history. We also have a presentation entirely on the U.S. Constitution. Two, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, two. So we'll see. You have to tune in, guys. You have to keep tuning in, and you have to tell all of your friends to tune in, because, yeah, I'm so excited about this series. I love tonight's presentation, but I like the other ones even more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the founding fathers of the United States were Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, they were avid readers and studies, studiers of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And to assume that the Constitution was not heavily influenced by the Bible would be simply ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. heavily influenced by their reading of the Bible. And, of course, you know, the first Constitution that had separation of church and state in it was the Constitution of Moses. Mm. That's where it starts. And it doesn't really come back again in any significance until the United States. Mm. Yeah, as I mentioned toward the end of the presentation, Charles Montesquieu was the second most read author by these guys that they based the three-pronged um, you know, government system on. But the first most read document was the Bible. And so modern historians, some of them try to say, oh, no, you know, the founding fathers weren't really Christian. Um, but 
so many of the principles that they derived were from the Bible, quotes from the Bible that we'll see a little more in the presentations on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And I wanted to say, too, even though I'm the moderator, you guys told me, I want to tell all of you guys out there, these guys told me to talk a lot and join the conversation, just in case anyone's <laughs> thinking. Why well, is he talking? He's the guy that's supposed to be answering the question. But, um, you know, it was it was through what's called the Protestant Reformation that people in the West began to adopt the idea that they were obligated by no higher authority than God's word and their conscience. And uh, this idea was unheard of in, in the course of European history. And so we see the genesis of civil liberty and religious liberty in what's called the Protestant Reformation. And so the Reformation was a reaction against tyrannical, oppressive religious systems that uh, used force rather than love to transform people's lives. And they would kill you and burn you and torture you if you didn't. And this went on for over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Uh, some could say almost 1,500 years. Um, this went on for ages. And so people got into studying scripture, the Bible, which had been taken away from the people for so long in Europe. And uh, they said, hey, wait a second. This isn't what scripture teaches. This isn't what God's all about. And they started to stand on the word of God and stand for their conscience, and that that birthed this idea of, hey, I don't have to believe what you tell me to believe. And then, you know, also there was other reactions to that, the French Revolution and whatnot. So atheism and Protestantism was birthed out of oppressive religion that came out of Europe. Mm. So, um, yeah, cool. Um, okay, do you guys want to agree that Sharissa has to answer this next question? Yes, <laughs> taking on Sharissa a little bit. Sounds like a plan. Um, okay, oh, where are what, we what, here? Uh, <laughs> uh, James James asks the question uh, tonight from Facebook, how can religion be enforced today if a lot of the world seems to hate religion? Mm. I know more atheists than I know Christians. Mm. Is it resurfacing in another form? Mm. Um, That's a great question. It is a good question. I think, again, we just go back to what the Bible says, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more in coming presentations, but Revelation 13 is going to show us that at the end of time, before the world comes to an end, before the end of the world, the world is going to turn religious Mm. because there's an issue that comes up concerning worship. Mm. So I'm just saying what the Bible is saying. That's what this series is presenting, what the Bible is saying, and it's... Yeah, it may not look at that way now, but that's where the Bible says it is trending. And we have to keep in mind, too, the Bible talks about signs and wonders that Mm. can also be deceptive. And for many atheists in the world today, seeing is believing. So if they could see some deceptive sign appear, well, that could turn them religious Mm. pretty quick. Yeah, that's right. Very true. And um, just to to tie on to that, Sharissa was mentioning the the presentations on this topic. Um, Presentation number seven of the series uh, I actually, Josh, was it? Josh, I actually, we look at the different people groups that are already being brought together and united, atheists included. Mm. And so I think you'll find that very interesting. It's not something we're saying is only future, but we can point to things happening in the last few years where atheists uh, are included in being pulled under this banner. So yeah. keep watching and um, yeah, let we're, us know what your thoughts. We, we, sorry. <clears throat> we also need to remember that Atheism is still a very, very small minority of the population of our planet. Mm. There are certain sectors of society where we feel that it's taking over, but what does it make up? About 7% of the population of the world right now, which is high historically. That's the highest it's ever been. Mm. But it's still a very, very small 
number of people that are mm. actually atheists in our world today. That's mm. true. That's right. And something else that I think people forget is that the Western civilization, with all of its atheists, um, it, it, it is, in essence, Christian. And when I say that, what I mean is the values, the, the yes. understanding of right and wrong, the morals. It, it was all birthed. I just read a book, by the way. I'd recommend this book um, highly. It's called Dominion, and it was written by a historian from one of the Ivy League universities in in England. And he, he's an athe- he was an atheist. And while he, while he was writing this book, he said, the more I study classical civil- civilization, the more I see how Christian I am, even though I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. And he even concludes in his book that what we see in the world today between you know, the, the warring between secularism and religion in the West, right? We see lots of anti-Christian kind of secular thinking. And we see a lot of Christians trying to kind of take over through the, the use of law and the state. And um, he, he says, this is, this is a family feud. And he said, we atheists, when we actually become familiar with the history of our, of our civilization and the rise of, of our mindset and how we think and why we think what we think, we're Christians mm-hmm. in, in our values. And so um, Interesting. A, f- a few, how do you say this, a few tragedies, uh, loss of wealth and luxury, and you see how fast people run back to their roots, run back to mom mm-hmm. and dad and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's a, that's a thought to add to it. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Well, we are making progress here. We're getting through questions. And um, yeah, we, we've got a little bit of time left. Um, well, actually, we've decided, by the way, that each evening we'll do between 30 and 45 minutes of live Q&A. Um, just depends how we feel the spirit leading, right? Yeah. How many questions we can get through? Yeah, how many texts I get from my wife and my phone in my pocket saying, <laughs> oh, <no." laughs> um, Okay. Uh, Brian has asked us. Oh, yeah. No, we just answered Brian's question. Raphael sorry, asks, and he's asking from Facebook, what about China, Russia, or the EU? <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, so nobody's saying anything, so I'm going to jump in here and say something. Um, okay, so here's, here's, when you when you look at the United States right now, we can all see the cracks. Mm. And, and the cracks are getting pretty big, and they're bigger than they were last time we had an election. Mm. And you can see, you know, you've got this, China is this rising superpower. You've got the cracks starting to form in the United States. You've got Russia that is kind of like this old superpower that still has, you know, a certain level of muscle that's there and a certain, definitely a certain level of scariness. Enough nuclear weaponry to destroy the whole world a couple times. Russia, Russia yeah. has never lost its scariness. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very valid question. And here's the simple, here's the simple answer. The Bible says that the last superpower is the United States. I know we haven't shown you that from the Bible yet, but stay tuned. We're getting there. Mm. So the Bible says that the United States is the last superpower. So when you start see the cracks starting to form in the United States and you see the next great superpowers, you know, sort of jostling for position and starting to rise, it simply tells you Jesus is coming soon. Yes. Mm. And that's really good news. That's, that is probably the best news that we can share with anyone this evening mm-hmm. is the fact that Jesus is coming soon and he's going to put an end to all of, you know, the turmoil that we see happening in our world right now. That's right. And I should mention earlier, um, what I mentioned about the founding documents of America, the reason that they're special is because they're really a leaf out of heaven's constitution. It's really a foretaste of of what, and now it's not being lived out as it should, but in written form, 
they're the closest thing to heaven's constitution that we find uh, on earth. And so, yeah. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's good. Something else I wanted to point out is that when you read the prophecies of the book of Revelation, you see that America is a part of the larger picture at the end of time. Mm. And so the Bible does not discount the fact that there will be coalitions of forces that will combine together to create a one-world system mm. that will, in effect, oppress and force. Basically, what the Bible predicts is this, and I don't think this is letting the cat out of the bag too far. If you guys just kick me, if I'm, gonna, if I'm spilling the beans. <laughs> but um, we see predicted in scripture a resurgence on a global scale of what we saw on a, a european scale mm-hmm. in in the ancient days in the medieval period of europe mm-hmm. and and really so there are multiple nations involved in uh what was going on in europe mm-hmm. the, the oppression the tyranny there of the old world and so the same will be the case globally and america plays an integral role a leading role in all of that too mm-hmm. so that doesn't discount that these great and powerful nations won't play a part in the in the end of the world Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, Brian Mogaka, this is a great question, Brian. I shouldn't have said your last name. We committed <laughs> that I wouldn't. Um, he's Brian's talking. Well, his question's on YouTube, so I can say this since we're on YouTube. Um, uh, I don't know why we made that silly law. <laughs> Whose idea is that? I don't know. Um, is civil liberty connected with religious liberty? Mm. Is it possible to have one without the other? And should we parenthesis, Christians advocate, he's a Christian, advocate for civil liberties? Mm. Absolutely. Great question. Absolutely. This guy's thinking. Brian, you're thinking. Great. There are a few layers there to that question, but um, as far as if the question, I'll just tackle the last part of should Christians, you know, (coughs) battle for civil liberty and push for civil liberty? Um, I would say absolutely. I mean, there are biblical principles that protect civil liberty. For example, the rule that you cannot steal something that is not your own. You can be prosecuted by law. You cannot take someone else's life. You can be prosecuted by law. These are not religious liberty issues. These are civil liberty issues. But the principles we find in the Bible and just about every religion under the sun um, protects life and, you know, individual property and even nations and people groups that are in the middle of the jungles and have no concept of a, a creator God other than the one that they see through nature. Um, they have these laws ingrained into them because it's just, uh, you know, their consciences are still working and God is able to speak to their consciences. So I would say yes. However, um, Yes, Christians should uphold civil liberties and we should encourage that to be done. However, we see in the Bible that Christians like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, there was this law made, hey, you have to bow down to this giant golden statue, right? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were some of the leaders in Babylon. They were Hebrew slaves that were brought and um, they refused to bow down. Now, the chapter before, or two chapters before, say that they were the strongest and wisest in the land because they'd been faithful to follow God's health laws. In Daniel chapter 1, we read the story. Um, Now, I say all of that to say this. When they were taken before the king and they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they were stronger than these guys who who were binding them. But they allowed themselves to be bound. In other words, when their religious liberties were infringed upon, when their civil liberties even... Uh, when they were forced in this way, they were faithful to God, um, no matter the cost. 
basically. And um, yeah, I share that to say that, you know, civil liberties are important. But if our focus is just upholding civil liberties, then we can go down a very wrong track mm. and even a dangerous track, as we see with some movements in America right now. Yeah, and the Bible teaches that all true freedom is found in Christ. Mm. So we can be free, like we're not in jail right now, but the Bible teaches that there is a slavery that is to sin, mm -hmm. and the end of that is death. So mm. according to Jesus, he says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Mm. So the truest right. freedom comes in obedience to God, no matter what yep. happens with the civil. Do you want to try? I, I've, I, I tell you, the idea of, of civil liberty, it, it's a big deal to me, because I think all of us have a civic and religious duty as mm -hmm. individuals. That's right. We are citizens of the countries that we live in, and we should care about our fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a person who loves God, then I love the children of God. And the Bible teaches me in Acts chapter 17 that we are all the offspring of God. And God has died for every single human being and, and every person mm -hmm. in my country is a child of God. And so if I see a person or a group of persons who happens to be uh, tr treated unfairly and their civil rights are, are, are not being honored, then it is my duty as a Christian and as a citizen of my country mm. to step up and to stand up for, for people who are not being right. uh, given a fair shake. So I think that's, that's the biblical truth. Yeah. And so, yeah, thank you, Brian, for your, for your question. I think it's a fantastic question. Um, but uh, I would also say that uh, you said civil liberties here. We've always got to make sure this is a different subject, but... There's a difference between liberty and license. Mm. I'll leave that there. Yeah. We'll talk about that some, some other time. Okay, we're going to do two more questions real quick, and we're going to end uh, for the sake of time. We did skip a question uh, earlier, and it doesn't... Yeah, it was, it was from Aster on Facebook. Sorry, Aster, for missing your question, sister, but we came back to it. Uh, I didn't do that on, uh, necessarily on purpose. Who is America, Aster asks, in the 12 tribes... Or who of the twelve sons of Jacob represents America? No, this is, this is a question. Okay, so a lot of, I guess, I, when I realized I had skipped this question, Aster, I thought, should I go back to this question? Because a lot of people out there who are viewing this mm. might be like, ah, oh, what's that? That's theological in nature, and that's specific to the Bible in certain places. But I don't know if you guys want to address it. Well, there's a few different theories out there in relationship to this, and, 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 and this is where I'm sort of, okay, we're talking about theories now. Yes. Um, one one theory is that you know the British and therefore be, the, the the British colonies, which is going to include uh, America and the United States, are descended from the ten lost tribes of Israel. So that's a religious view. You're saying this is a religious view. Okay, that is I've there. never met someone with that religious view. I've, I have yeah. met people with this religious view from time to time. It's it's not a big view. Uh, it has. No foundation in scripture, neither does it have a foundation in history. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there is some foundation in legend and myth, but that's the extent of it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's not something that we're going to give particular credibility to. I don't think that we can look around our world today and we can start arbitrarily assigning, well, this nation here belongs to this tribe and this nation belongs to this tribe. There are definitely things that we can learn from the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. We can learn from the, the characters because their characters are all described in the book of Genesis and they describe the different characters of human beings that live on our planet right now. Mm 
We can learn things from their names. If you look at the names of the 12 tribes, you've got the gospel story right there. There are lots of things that we can learn, Mm. but we can't go and just arbitrarily ascribe, well, you know, uh, America is the tribe of Ephraim and, Mm. you know, Australia is the tribe of Manasseh. No, we can't go down that path. The the Bible doesn't give us any license or any evidence to go down that path. Yeah. So we as a group of presenters just disagree with me if you don't agree, but I would say that we as a group of Oh, wait, I'm not a presenter. But you as a group of presenters, I as one of the producers, do not prescribe to the idea that a genetic descendants of Abraham who once composed the 12 tribes of Israel have a unique and special purpose at the end of time. We more, we, we believe in the biblical teaching that if you're Christ, you're Abraham's mm. seed and heirs according to the promise. Mm. And that when we enter into the era of Christ, he's torn down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor free nor bond. Mm. Uh, nor male or female, but we're all one in Christ. Mm-hmm. And Jesus died for the world, and, and now anyone who wants to be considered a chosen one of God, a covenant person of God, places their faith in the Son mm. of God. I think it's important to note that God is not so small that he is controlled by DNA. Mm. And so that he is forced to bless some people, even though they are immoral, because of the DNA that they carry. Yes. God's blessing is not based on DNA, mm. it's based on morality and on yeah. our connection with God. That's, That's right. right. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said, you know, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. What kind of DNA would the stones have had? That's right. <laughs> so, we, okay, we've got, we've got a couple more questions. We're not going to get to them all. Um, but I'm going to ask Nita's question from, from, from YouTube. And um, I'm excited about this question. I'm glad that she asked it. She says, what's your biblical view, R.E., Black Lives Matter, given your slavery discussion tonight? I'm chomping at the bit, guys, but I'm going to put the gag on myself. <laughs> He's got the tape. That Carl will put the tape on his face. And you know, I think there's a whole lot of heat over this issue. Yeah. When you talk to the average person um, about the average person that is supporting BLM, they believe that everybody matters. You talk to the average person that supports ALM, and they believe that Black Lives Matter. You know, you get the, it, you, you've got the extremes at the very, you know, ends of these arguments that are causing all the trouble and rioting. But most of us are all on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Most of us are all on the same page. And, and I've got friends who are always posting BLM stuff. They don't believe that um, all lives don't matter. Mm. Yes. I've got friends who are posting ALM stuff. They don't believe that black lives don't matter. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And don't you wish we'd stop kind of fighting about that? Like, when I say this, don't get me wrong. I mean, we've got lots of issues in the West to deal with. We've got a heritage and a legacy of slavery, Jim Crow laws, and uh, the disenfranchisement of millions and millions of black people in America and in other parts of the West. And so this is an issue. We don't want to, you know, minimize it and, and trivialize it. Uh, but at the same time, just the tension right now, the, the at each other's throats right now, I just think, man, everyone, let's talk. Let's have real conversations. Let's not just judge people by using one word or not using another word. Like, let's have a real conversation. Let's all get together. You know, the, the tension right now is driving me mad. But I want to say that when we as a team hear the phrase Black Lives Matter, as Bible-believing Christians, we say, Amen. Mm, that's right. Completely Amen. Agree. Like, there's nothing else to say. Black Lives Matter. And if anyone was ever in doubt, uh, Jesus was never in doubt. And 
true Bible-believing Christians have never been in doubt on that question. So, But at the same time, people do have concerns about the organization Black Lives Matter, and rightly so. If you go to their website, they say things about destroying... They, they didn't say destroy... They're against, they say things like, you know, they're... They downplay the value of the nuclear family mm-hmm. in society, and and somebody's going to catch me on that and say that's not exactly what they say. Yeah, they they, they they've loosened their position more and more as time and has gone on. And that's part of there's Marxism, certain, and they're they're openly Marxist. They have, yeah, the right. There's there's certain political uh, goals of the organization that I myself uh, would not ever get enwrapped you know wrapped up in. Mm. But as far as the essence of the message of Black Lives Mattering and all people being treated equally under the law, we better all say amen to that. Yeah. And, and, and that's what the Bible teaches. And, and people that say Christ. that, and this, and this worries me sometimes, because people that say that does not mean they are automatically ascribing to the ideas of the instigators of that. Mm. That's right. That's right. They may share a quote. They may, yeah, go to a, a rally of some kind. And I think that... Um, I think that what's what's happened as well is, and I think that a lot of the Black Lives Matter leaders and individuals like George Floyd's brother started denouncing the the riots and the looting that was happening pretty much straight away. And so I think when some people hear BLM or Black Lives Matter, they think of the riots and the looting. Um, but that's yeah, that's not a that's not a, a fair connection to link it all up completely together. Um, yeah. Do some of the people that are carrying the same banners or where there was a peaceful protest, have they broken out into riots at times? Yeah, it's happened. Um, but as Matt mentioned, you know, the, the phrase black lives matter, we couldn't agree more strongly mm-hmm. and um, all lives matter as, as law represented. And I think that those two phrases can go together without Absolutely. it being a battle or a war can. like a lot of people are fighting. A lot of the people who, who say all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter, what they're doing is they're saying, wait a second, we're picking up on something here and we're picking up on the idea that you're telling me that I don't believe that Black Lives Matter and you're telling me there's a concerted effort to oppress black people today. And I don't know if I agree with that. Now, whether the people who say that are right or wrong that's not my point in bringing them up. It's just that their sensitivity is against this idea that I don't care about black people or others that I know don't care about black people. But I think the people who really are ardent in this cause, the BLM movement cause, they, they, they basically say, hey, wait a second, don't respond to us with all lives matter because, of course, we, we think all lives matter. It's not that we're saying that all lives don't matter. Yeah. We're just simply saying there's a people group who's been marginalized for, for hundreds of years mm. And their lives matter. Now, the stats and the data on police brutality and all that stuff are up for debate and discussion. And that's why I say I wish everyone would talk Mm. and debate and have honest conversations rather than saying, well, this person doesn't agree with my view on the statistics Mm. uh, about police brutality and, you know, white nationalism and racism in the system. And so, therefore, they're just a they're just a white racist, you know, who's entitled and enjoying their white privilege. Well, that's not healthy. That's not constructive. And the other person who thinks, wait a second, I'm not a racist and my friends aren't racist. Just because someone else is BLM and going Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that they're a communist either. Mm. So let's all chill out, love each other, and have conversations. Yeah. All right. So you guys should have never told me to talk. <laughs> you got what you asked for. I told you. I tried to get them to not you know, have me on here, but they forced me. Uh, and black note. But hey, listen, we're so glad that you guys joined us tonight. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for your questions. We got a couple that we didn't get to, but we will, right? Guys, next time. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. We'll, we'll see you here. 7 30. Uh, our second uh, presentation premieres on the N. Digital, Facebook, YouTube, and website. And we'll be here at 8.
God bless you guys. Have a great night. Take care.